Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. Calice got an early jump on our beach week. Lots of doings in Amherst, as this just in, the Union 26 and Regional School Committees and Mike Morris have reached a mutual agreement to part ways. Dr. Morris's seven-year tenure in the role of superintendent. This change in leadership not due to any wrongdoing on Mike's part, says the statement that was sent to us here at the Fabulous 413. And meanwhile in Amherst, the Gazette reporting that Earl Miller, Amherst Director of the Unarmed Police Alternative Community Responders for Equity, Safety and Service Department, is also on paid administrative leave till the completion of an independent investigation, according to town officials. A lot of those town officials either are not commenting or are currently on vacation, so hopefully the NEPM News Department will be following up on those stories out of Amherst. Later in the show, he told the stories of the most interesting people he could find in Western Mass in the pages of the Greenfield Recorder for 40 years, and reporter Richie Davis has a new collection of those stories out. He'll share some of those stories with us coming up. Plus, it's Live Music Friday with a band that'll be playing performance in Northampton next Tuesday, King Radio. And a wine Thunderdome with Provisions Long Meadow will be tasting northern Italian wines. But first, let's talk about the quote-unquote Big Ol' Indian. A story by Chris Larrabee in the Greenfield Recorder. The headline reads, Following talks of removal, Charlemont Indigenous statue headed to Oklahoma. Since 1974, the giant fiberglass Native American statue outside the Native and Himalayan Views souvenir shop has watched over Route 2. Now more than four decades later, the controversial statue is on the move following months of discussions between the store's owner, the local Native American community, and the Charlemont Historical Commission, though that board eventually decided to stay out of the conversation. The statue, which local tribal representatives say perpetuates racial stereotypes, is headed to Oklahoma after being purchased by Alan and Beth Hilburn, who operate the Highway Cafe on Route 66. Joining us is Tamantha Sylvester, an indigenous Ojibwe artist. She is the Lin-Manuel Miranda Family Fellow through the National Theater Institute and an Art and Survival Fellow through Double Edge Theater and Betty's Daughter Arts Collective. Tamantha is an ensemble member and hospitality director through Double Edge and a community advocate through Okiteo Cultural Center in Ashfield. Tamantha also circulated a petition to remove the so-called Big Indian statue. We also welcome back to the show Rhonda Anderson, who is the Western Massachusetts Commissioner on Indian Affairs, founder and co-director of the Okiteo Cultural Center, and the Native Youth Empowerment Foundation and a member of the Advisory Council for the New England Foundation for the Arts. Thank you both for joining us to talk about this. Uh, Tamantha, you were the one who began circulating this petition and also was instrumental in the conversations with Sonam Lama, who is the owner of the, the Native and Himalayan Views shop on Route 2. Tell me what you're feeling now that that statue is no longer along the so-called Mohawk Trail. Yeah, thanks, Monty. I'm happy to be here. Um, so, as you said, it was a very long uh, journey and a lot of conversations and dialogue that were very difficult as there was a lot of learning to do on both sides, actually. But in the end, we, we all came to an agreement and more of an understanding of each other and of culture and of coming together. And how I feel now is uh, it's a little bit mixed right now because, I, I mean, at this time, all I can say is that um, if the Cherokee tribe and the tribal leaders in that area agree that the statue is, in fact, an accurate representation for them, then it's not really my business. And the, the, let me interrupt. The local tribe. Yeah, oh, the, yeah, go ahead. The, um, the, the Highway Cafe, which is on Route 66, released a statement that they are uh, excited to welcome this statue. This big fellow has stood tall for the past 49 years in Charlemont, Shelburne Falls, and will now make its way to Venita, Oklahoma. They say, as a proud Delaware and Cherokee tribal member, it's an incredible honor to bring him to Oklahoma, where he can call the Western Motel and Highway Cafe home. Um, Tamantha, and I guess Rhonda Anderson can weigh in on this too, um, part of what I remember from the beginning of this conversation was that this giant roadside attraction statue that's been up since 1974 is not an accurate depiction of the indigenous community that's uh, correct. of this region. However, it is more representative, perhaps, uh, of, of there. So, it is, and you're saying that this is their, their statue now, if it is something that is represented. No. Oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was just going to say that um, I wanted to say a little bit more about that because in any case, in any which way you look at it, and this is typically true of roadside attractions as it pertains to indigenous people, they're not accurate. Mm. They're usually pan-indigenous uh, pan images that are not of our making. And these types of images are stereotypical in the way that they, one, again, they were not made by native people. And they're also representative of a time when non-native folks, specifically white people, would create these in order to make a profit and in order to drive sales up for whatever their business is and we uh, had and for their own entertainment. And we had Rhonda on a couple weeks ago talking about the history of the problematic name of the Mohawk Trail, some of the problematic mm-hmm. other uh, statues on, on the road, including uh, Hail to the Sunrise which uh, we can get back into perhaps. But Rhonda Anderson, uh, who is also one of the co-directors of Okateo Cultural Center in Ashfield and the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in Western Mass, uh, what are you thinking now that this statue um, has been removed from Route 2? Hi, good afternoon, Monty. Thank you so much for having us uh, on today. I think it's very important to center indigenous voices. So I really appreciate having this opportunity. Uh, It's very important to understand that there have been over seven tribal representatives that have signed a letter that specifically says that this representation is not okay. It encourages playing Indian. Um, And so I'm, I'm happy to see it go. I feel like it's been an aggression. Um, I've lived in this area for, oh, 50 years now. So um, I'm, I'm actually older than the statue. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I feel um, it's a half win, just like Tamantha was saying, that um, this may be an issue that we're passing along down the road for another community to have to go through this same struggle. Tamantha, you uh, want to talk about how this statue um, perpetuates racial stereotypes and is dangerous. And, uh, you know, Rhonda just said that she viewed this statue for the entirety of the time she lived here as an aggression. For those who may not be able to see it that way, explain why it is that you feel that way about it. Yeah, thanks for that question, uh, because that is one of the things that is not being understood or really listened to so for me i obviously i know what these images mean and and what they represent to not only myself but to my family and my tribe um and i'll reiterate that these images were not of our making these were made by non-native people specifically white people that came to perpetuate playing indian and to perpetuate uh, degrading native people we don't look like that Um, And so when I see these, it's if we think about it this way, maybe um, the Washington Redskins, Mm -hmm. that was obviously a huge debate. Most natives were not in agreement with that, but some natives were. Um, But that's not it's not a decision that can be made by a non-native person in any case, while everyone has a right to their opinion and a right to voice their opinion when it comes to native stereotyping and um, racism, non-natives do not have the right to say whether or not that's racist if they're not in fact native. This is up to the indigenous communities. Speaking with Tamantha Sylvester and Rhonda Anderson, who are both part of the Okateo Cultural Center in Ashfield about the removal of the so-called Big Indian statue off of Route 2 in Charlemont. It just left a little bit Earlier this week, if I recall, and is now on its way to Oklahoma on Route 66, where the folks there are claiming that it is a better representation of of the Delaware and Cherokee tribal membership. Um, this there is a counter petition to, to to bring the statue back. I'm not going to assume who the people are that are signing it or putting it forward there, whether they're indigenous or not. I mean, I am going to personally assume, but I'm not going to say anything publicly about that. What What is your take on this counter petition to bring the statue back? Because, Tamantha, you circulated a petition to remove the statue that garnered 1,300 signatures. Yes. So um, this is actually the first time I'm hearing of this counter petition. 
So my initial reaction to that is, and what I've been saying for, and what Rhonda's been saying, and you, all kinds of indigenous people have been saying for a while, we just, we need to have a dialogue of what this means. Um, and we need to actually talk about the harm that it's doing because it's not just, people need to understand that this is actually dangerous to our communities. Um, In the sense that it's an erasure of the true identity of your communities? It's erasure, but, and while Indian country has known this for actually a long time, um, it's racist and, let me start with this, actually. I want to talk about the why for a second. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to that. Um, So why is it considered racist and dangerous? It's because the native, we didn't create these images. They're originally made for non-native entertainment and profit that glorifies settler colonialism. That's the first thing. And while Indian country has known this to be true for a long time, there's more recent scientific research and statistical findings, uh, specifically based in psychological, um, in the psychological studies. They're showing how this type of stereotyping and appropriation affects human behavior and I guess tendencies would be the right word for both natives and non-natives. So specifically for non-natives, these images and stereotyping and appropriation leads to higher levels of violence and racial bias towards Native Native Americans. So in the instance of this, it's actually not uncommon for indigenous people or people like Rhonda and I to receive threats, derogatory remarks, um, which we've all, which we've received. So this is the type of thing uh, that is very, that's why it's so pressing because it's actually leading to dangerous outcomes for indigenous people. Have you received threats because of this petition, because of this removal of the statue specifically? I have not yet received any direct threats, no. Rhonda, you're saying you have? Yes, I have. Um, was this when the petition was circulating or after the removal just happened earlier this week? Both times. Uh huh. Speaking with Rhonda Anderson and Tamantha Sylvester, both part of the indigenous-led and uh, Okuteo Cultural Center based in Ashfield about the removal of the quote-unquote big Indian statue. Um, the Rhonda, I know you were involved in this uh, debate that happened several years ago in the village of Turner's Falls where the town mascot was called the Indians about the changing of the name of that mascot. This kind of is all part of the same conversation of erasure and appropriation and the damage that 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 can contend. At the same time, many people in the white community are saying they have fond memories of being an Indian, going to high school and playing on the team, or they have fond memories driving down Route 2 and seeing this big friendly statue. Um, what's what before I let you uh, both go, uh, Rhonda, what's your take on on, I would say, largely white people that have that sort of assessment of the, either the statue or, or of a mascot that they were so fond of? But thank you, Monty, for bringing that up. I think it's very, very important to highlight that I do not have Jedi mind tricks. I kind of wish I had that power uh, to to erase people's memories, <laughs> but I do not. Uh, it's important to understand that we're not taking anyone's memories away, that your memories will be intact and yours and yours alone. We are, in fact, removing racist iconography that is harmful to our community and that the indigenous people have spoken out about this. That is the voice that matters. Samantha Sylvester from Okateo as well. Your thoughts on the uh, the collective memory of people in the area who may have fond recollections of this statue now off yeah. at Route 2 and on its way to Oklahoma? Yes. So um, I've heard Rhonda talk about this. I've heard Larry talk about this. Larry and of Spotted Crow Man, who's another yes. member of Okateo. Yeah. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. And I've heard you know other folks in the indigenous community call it different things, but... Um, what needs to be addressed is what's called shared memory or collective memory. And here's what I'm talking about when I say that. Not everyone is on the same timeline in history. We're all in different timelines. And it's interesting because I, the amount of people that we are seeing, um, it's a lot of native, non-native folks in the area that are upset and very angry and emotional at this statue being removed because they have these wonderful memories of their childhood as it relates to the statue. But the thing is, is that we're not, we're not trying to take away your memories. <laughs> like Rhonda said, we don't want to take away your memories. 
We want you to feel good. We want you to feel happy. That's not what this is about. Um, but there has to be a recognition that the context contains racist elements. There's not that recognition yet. Uh, you've heard of blackface. Mm-hmm. Our version is redface, and that's what the statue represents. That is Tamantha Silva, Sylvester, uh, indigenous Ojibwe artist who is also a member of Okateo Cultural Center and who was fantastic in the Hidden Territories of the Bacchae, Double Edges production that just wrapped a couple weeks ago, as well as Rhonda Anderson, the Western Mass Commissioner of Indian Affairs, weighing in on the removal of the quote-unquote big Indian statue off the quote-unquote Mohawk Trail Route 2. Thank you both so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you very much, Monty. Happy to be here. Thank you for having Later in the show, Live Music Friday with a band playing performance in Northampton Tuesday, King Radio, a wine thunderdome with provisions. Up next, longtime Greenfield recorder reporter Richie Davis. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Tired of traveling with bus tours that leave you exhausted, but explore the same old, same old? Stumped by where to take your visiting relatives who've been everywhere? Here it is at Greenfield Recorder's Tura Obscura, Elsie the Cow, America's most famous lactress of all time was a knockout Jersey, whose real name was Yuldu Lobelia. She won plenty of prizes for Elm Hill Farm in Brookfield before being spotted by an agent for Bordens and leased as the nation's number one bovine superstar, dressed in an embroidered green blanket at the 1939 New York World's Fair. By the time she died at age nine in 1941 traffic accident, <laughs> Elsie had appeared in an array of improbable places from the bridal suite in New York's Waldorf Astoria to leaving her hoof prints at Hollywood's Grauman's Chinese Theater. She also appeared at the 1939 New York World's Fair and starred as Buttercup in the 1940 movie version of Louisa May Alcott's Little Men. But everyone's favorite jersey always came home to her 1,050-acre Brookfield farm on East Main Street, where she was best loved and best remembered. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. Joining me is the longtime reporter for the Greenfield Recorder from 1976 to 2019, give or take a few years in there, uh, Richie Davis. Thank you so much for joining me, Richie. You have a third book in a trilogy that you're saying, although George Lucas said the same thing, and now there's going to be endless Uh, 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 endless amounts of movies, uh, where you have chronicled extraordinary lives of people who uh, live here in Western Mass. You've been doing it, I remember, and loving reading, you know, while you were writing for the paper, and I've loved these collections of books that you've come out with. The first one was called Inner Landscapes, the second one, Goodwill and Ice Cream, and this, the third one, Flights of Fancy, Souls of Grace, More True Tales from Extraordinary Lives. Uh, You'll be doing a reading at the Wendell Free Library this coming Tuesday. The reason I got to the title of Flights of Fancy, because I did a Flights of Fancy tour that took readers around outside of uh, the very restricted domains of Franklin County to uh, see where Mary had a little lamb, where uh, Elsie the cow uh, was born, where Dr. Seuss was, and Jack Kerouac, uh, and to Lake Chakagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagag
added a lot of dynamism to the paper to have these human interest profiles. It's part of what I like doing on the show here and what I like doing on my show previous to this, too, talking to and and meeting really interesting people. I want to always be like Monty. (laughs) Well, I want to be like Richie Davis, (laughs) who has his third book chronicling these true tales from extraordinary lives of people in Western Mass and beyond. Very Franklin County-centric, as we mentioned, which is great. I live in Franklin County. I make the journey down to Dr. Seuss's birthplace (laughs) every day to do the show. And it's really broadened my perspective on Western Mass, too, in a great way. You'll be reading from this book, Flights of Fancy, Souls of Grace, Tuesday at the Wendell Free Library, as opposed to the uh, the library that they charge you. I don't know why they call it that. Yeah. Um, well, we have we have other readings coming up later on in Sunderland and Montague and Shelburne Falls and uh, Leverett and you name it. The other two books, and this is the third in a trilogy, and you say it's the last, even though you said you probably could come <laughs> out with eight more of these, and I'm hoping that you do. A lot of the people that you profile in these books are the people that make up the ethos in some ways of Franklin County. And we'll all be celebrating Juanita Nelson uh, and her 100th birthday. She was in the first book. This coming weekend, she was profiled in the first book. A lot of the people that um, you talk about, even in this new book, are working towards the peace movement. They have people who've had to flee Cambodia and come up with their own Cambodian Buddhist temple in Western Mass and following those stories. One of the people that is chronicled in this book is nationally renowned, but lives here in Western Mass, Randy Keeler. For those who aren't familiar with Randy Keeler and his story, set up why Randy Keeler is somebody you focused on in this book. Well, Randy Keeler was is a, a lifelong um, peace activist who uh, went to prison um, for um, for tearing up his draft card um, in sixty late sixties and inspired Daniel Ellsberg and. Um, and Daniel Ellsberg, if you don't know, is the person who released the Pentagon Papers, which was largely instrumental in changing the American perception towards the, what was going on in the Vietnam War. He just passed away. His papers are now yep. uh, at UMass Amherst. And Randy, uh, he's a um, an icon. In uh, so, here's a here's a little bit from the Randy Keeler story. In the in his late seventies. Randy Keeler retains the handsome, neat appearance that harkens back to his youthful draft resistor days as he looks back on a lifetime of taking action on his convictions. He recalls his mother asking him, why do you always try to take on a Don Quixote project? First, you try to do total nuclear disarmament. Then you try to take private money out of politics. He laughs softly at the recollection. What's motivated me to work on different political projects has never been any kind of realistic prospect of major change, he says. I would have never done anything if I wanted for that to occur. In my lifetime, I can't think on these issues I've worked on that there's still been no indication of major change. But I do it because it goes to the heart of what's wrong. It gives me personal satisfaction not to be fussing around the edges of the problem, minimalist approaches that don't go to the heart of it. And I believe, perhaps wrongly, that's what most people want without any prospect of necessarily success. I just want was motivated by working on what seemed to be getting to the root of the problem. A pause, and then he adds, I'd like to be remembered as an optimist doer who, like Don Quixote, wasn't afraid to charge the windmill and could imagine the windmill coming down. He, Randy Keeler, is uh, an inspirational character to many people in the peace movement still. He an anti-war tax resistor, along with Juanita Nelson, who we mentioned and who will be celebrated uh, her 100th birthday this weekend, as well as in homage, the Free Harvest Supper coming up in Greenfield. That was her idea. They're all part of this enclave of people in Franklin County that have been working really hard towards these issues that may feel quixotic in some ways, that they may never be accomplished. And people may not agree with everything that any of these people have said or done. Right. But they're inspirational to me, certainly, and inspirational, I hope, to other people to see that, as Randy says, you look and say, well, what can I do in this situation? And you can look at Randy and say, well, you can make a difference. Speaking with Richie Davis, the longtime reporter for the Greenfield Recorder, who has a third book in a trilogy of profiles of people largely from the Franklin County area. The third book, Flights of Fancy Souls of Grace. He'll be reading this coming Tuesday at the Wendell Free Library. There is a fun story about a tire salesman in downtown Greenfield who practices 
Zen and changes your tires. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Len Weeks? Len Weeks and his family who've been in this this tire business for years and years. It's just a fun place to go on a winter's day when you're getting your snow tires put on and there's oodles of people there, or at least in the old days when people used to do that, we used to have snow. Um, (laughs) There's all kinds of fun paraphernalia there and a real spirit of uh, zen going through this place, which you don't usually think of in a tire place. You think of it as a hustle. You're going to go in there, maybe they're going to try to overcharge you, but Len will leave you with a carnation and there are Buddhist statues and fountains all over the place. It's very calming. (laughs) Yeah, and most of the time getting your tires, new tires on, especially if you've blown out a tire is is a stressful experience. Yeah. Even his sign is a reflection outside his business is a reflection of, of the person that you chronicle here in in your new book. Yeah, and he's Len is retired now, but it goes on the fa- in the family and uh, I drove his right grandfather by. started the business. Wow. So. And I drove by the sign again just yesterday, and it, it's still inspirational. Talking about the month of August helping us uh, be a bridge through to the end of the year. This book really is, you know, uh, I think an homage to the fact. 413, and, you know, it goes beyond Franklin County. There's a lot of Hampshire County stories here, too. It is really about my love for for this area of writing here for 45 years. Um, You're one of the people that thought about maybe you shouldn't, you weren't going to be here forever, and and it drew you back in. I thought it was two years max. Yeah. (laughs) That's what happened to me. Speaking with Richie Davis about his new book, Flights of Fancy Souls of Grace, More True Tales from Extraordinary Lives, pretty much all of whom have lived here in, in, as you have said and quoted, and thank you for the shameless plug, the fabulous (laughs) 413. The last story I want to talk about is the woman that you, in part, dedicate this book to, Paula Green. Yeah, so it's, de- it's dedicated to Paula and to Ermory Jones, a longtime columnist, and to my brother who died last year. It's really not about Paula so much as about comes out of the Karuna Center uh, for Peacemaking, which uh, Paula Green, uh, who's best known for the, her hands across the hills, worked with Kentucky, but also uh, was taught at uh, School for International Training doing conflict transformation. And she thought she had retired from that when, lo and behold, in you know, 2016, we had an election, and uh, it seemed to drive that a lot of the issues that she was dealing with around the world in Bosnia, in Rwanda, that there were uh, vibes that, uh, that we were we were treading into dangerous territory. Here as Americans, because of the, as the, the, the rhetoric that even now continues. Yeah. So the polarization in this country uh, really was a sort of an early warning sign that we might be headed to this territory. So Karuna Center started doing some uh, workshops, uh, seminars, where they're bringing in people from around the world to talk about, well, what happened in uh, Bosnia, what happened in uh, Rwanda, and how is it similar? So I'll just read a little passage from that. The growing verbal attacks on Muslims, Mexicans, and others that Paula Green and collaborating peace workers heard became more alarming, especially given her work in Rwanda. Their intertribal tensions where the Hutu-led government in the 1990s called the minority Tusi tribe cockroaches led to the 1994 genocide, resulting in nearly a, nearly a million deaths. When a human population is reduced to a bug, you can kill them, says Green. Like with Nazi characterizations of Jews as rats, its classic example of dehumanization, everybody in Rwanda had a transistor radio which blasted antagonisms and stimulated violence. Around the same time, Yugoslavia's interwoven Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian society was torn apart after the 1980 death of President Tito, with Slobodan Milosevic resurrecting a 600-year-old humiliating incident as a battle cry that led to atrocities against Bosnian Muslims, including genocide. Yugoslavia was a united country under Tito, Green says, before the war. People intermarried without even asking the origin of the family. Nobody cared. Religion was not about anything very serious for the people. It was an identity, but it was muted. Everybody looked alike. They spoke the same language. It only takes one manipulative, strong leader in power to stoke those grievances. 
And Paula Green would go on to try to initiate dialogue between people of coal country Kentucky and people here in Western Mass to try to bridge the political divide in many similar ways that, you know, from the same nation speaking the same language, perhaps with slightly different accents. She was awarded by the the Dalai Lama himself. Uh, I mean, she was an incredible person. And she just passed away. Just a year ago. Just a year year and a half ago. This is the kind of person that you can read about in this book and the other two books before it. And I'm sure... And the other five books that are going to follow, even though <laughs> <No>! Rich, <laughs> he says he doesn't want to do it. Mostly called from the pages of the Greenfield Recorder and your time there from, They're all there. 1976 They're all from the 1976 and 2019. Before I let you go, Richie Davis, what do you feel about the uh, the state of, of journalism and newspapers right now? Are we are we hanging on by a thread? Are we uh, about to come We're up? We're all hanging on by a thread, <laughs> you know, but never more never more important is the, the role of the media which tells people uh, what's going on, what's really going on, and inspires people with the stories that uh, we have to share and tells us how much we do have to share and why we should protect it. Richie Davis, longtime reporter for the Greenfield Reporter, Recorder. I get the Montague Reporter and the Greenfield Recorder. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I love the Montague Reporter, too. <laughs> yes, yes. The more the, the merrier. The more the merrier. The new book is called Flights of Fancy, Souls of Grace, More True Tales from Extraordinary Lives. He'll be reading at the Wendell Free Library uh, this coming Tuesday. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, Live Music Friday with a band playing Performance in Northampton Tuesday, King Radio. But up next, a wine Thunderdome with Provisions. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I'm getting ready to go on vacation, and so I've really got to get my day drinking game down and ready, and it is time once again to re-enter the wine Thunderdome at Provisions Long Meadow with Benson Hyde, Bruce McCamus, and Tony DeLuca. Benson and Bruce have joined us in the wine Thunderdome before. Tony, you're a, are you the official wine buyer of all of Provisions? Yep, I'm the wine director, wine and spirits. Nice. And, and you also have a relationship with one of the other <laughs> Fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, he's dragging me to the Thunderdome. Yeah, I'm psyched. He also can speak way more eloquently about wine than I can. So. And you're like a, have her around. a leveled sommelier too, right? Is that right? Yeah, certi- for certified sommelier and I have my uh, diploma in wine and spirits. Mm-hmm. So. Nice. So yep. she's going to instruct she's, she's all of us. So what's yeah. a good uh, getting into vacation mode day drinking wine here? Well, well white. I mean, it's summer, so this is actually a great place to start. And these are a couple of very fresh, easy day drinking wines. So Tony and I, speaking of vacation, working vacation, we're just in Italy visiting these wineries. Wow. Uh, and so we've kind of gotten a little bit of a deep dive into Piedmont Whites and came back very impressed and thought that the world should know more about these wines. Because when people think whites in Italy, they think Pinot Grigio. And while there is good Pinot Grigio, I still hold true to the argument that it is by and large the most boring of grapes. What do you, Tony, a Somalia, think about my assessment of that? <laughs> well, one of my favorite styles is a Ramado, which is a skin contact Pinot Grigio. So I guess it just depends on the flow. But I also think from Piedmont, one of the great varieties that is most famous in the white wine world, not red wine world, is Moscato. So Piedmont for whites is sort of known as like the Moscato territory. These two whites that we have here, for me, are a little bit more unique, a little bit fun, dry, something different. Because Moscato oftentimes is made in a way that's a, a little bit it's sweeter. Yeah. Breakfast wine. Yeah. It's perfect for vacation. <laughs> okay, maybe we should have got that Low alcohol and uh, sweet, yeah. you know? It's, it's the Moscato sort of like the gateway drug for wine. Light, easy, a little sweet, something a little bit more dynamic here today. What's this first one? The great friend is Herbaluce, and this is from Francesco Brigatti up in Alto Piedmonte. Francesco Rinaldi? Ciao, Francesco Rinaldi. Close. What's He's... the Brigatti? Oh, okay. Brigatti. What yeah. is the, the the variety again? Herbaluce. Oh, I never heard yeah. of that. No, it's one of those grapes that flies really under the radar, but makes some really serious wine, often compared to Burgundy and incredibly age-worthy as well. Really high acidity and also lots of like this fleshy texture. This is so steely. I feel like it's gonna activate my my fillings there in my mouth. Acidity and metal. This is so metal. Excellent! Oftentimes this grape variety has kind of like a honeydew melon, Mm. uh, meats, almond, kind of a nutty finish to it. Characteristics you don't oftentimes hear about or think about when you're talking about white wine, um, which makes it a little bit fun and dynamic. 
especially with cheese. Yeah. Tell us about your time that you spent at this winery. What was it like there? It's amazing. I mean, this is, it's like going back in time. This guy, you know, it's been in his family for generations. The winery is made out of stone and it's like hand dug. You feel like like you're in the like 1700s when you're tasting in this winery. It's incredible. Bruce, they didn't let you come? No, I wasn't invited. (laughs) Couples only, Bruce. Next year. Yeah, this winemaker also has a very light touch, working organically, farming organically, no additives. So this is a very clean winemaking in, in its mentality and following through on the palate, which is really nice. Both of these wines are done in stainless steel, which we figured would be good because it really showcases the grape. Um, so you really get a sense for what Herbaluche tastes like. Which is awesome because I don't think I've ever had it before. I've had Yerba Mate, what do you but, think Herba, but not Herba Luce. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched the Luce Underground on the El Rey Network, Mexican wrestling. Prince Puma versus Cage. Lucha Underground. But no, not Herba. <laughs> Herba what again? Now I don't even remember. <laughs> Herba Luce. Herba Luce. I think it means like, it definitely means something of the light, like green of the light or herb of the light. Natalucci was yeah. my family, Italian family name, which means Christmas light. <laughs> and my son, who was born on Christmas Eve, his middle name is Natalucci, because my great-grandfather was born on Christmas Eve and his name was Natalucci, but he was disowned by his family in Italy. He used to be a DiFelici. Oh, we Italians. Oh, it's all about the drama. <laughs> My grandfather who dug with his own hands this winery (laughs) in Piedmont, which is actually spelled Piemonte. That's why I like Piedmont. No, actually, Northern Italy, I love their their wines. And and if you're sick of Chianti and red wines from Southern Italy, get involved in Piedmont. Take a trip north. All right. Well, I love that. The steel was right away what I got, so it makes sense. It was in stainless steel as opposed to a barrel, which would impart more of a woody, vanilla kind of situation. Could be my new go-to. This could be my... My wife will only drink white wine, so this could be... Coming to Plum Island! Yeah. Okay, what's wine number two here at the Wine Thundernode? with Benson and Bruce and Tony here in their so, Long Meadow store, white wines from Northern Italy. Here we're moving just slightly south to Roero. Roero is the region that sits just above Barolo, so it's often overshadowed by its Southern uh, compatriot there. Mm-hmm. Roero is actually pretty famous for its Arnaise. Yeah, uh, well, when for, for Roero, that's a it's a tongue twister to say, yeah. especially for us Bostonians. Roero, 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 <laughs> you're about. Too many R's, too many yeah, R's for me. But Arnaise, that is the flagship region for Arnaise. And if you're having a Roero and it just says Roero on the label and it's a white, it will always be 100% Arnaise. That is the spiritual home for this great variety. And where Herbaluche had more of that kind of like melon thing happening and palm fruit here where you're getting more, at least for me, you're getting more peach, you're getting more a little bit of pear, and now you're also going into this like white flower. So one of the um, trademark notes for Arnaise is chamomile. Mm. Which is very... any of that? <laughs> uh, I, I did get a floral on it right away. I think what I got more than, the other one was minerally and steely. This one is salty, like almost like mm-hmm. actual yeah. salt. Actually, you hit the nail on the head because if you could see the label right now, you would see that oh, there's yeah. a shell on the label. <laughs> and that's because the soil here is really special. These vineyards are planted on fossils, seashell fossils. And um, it used to be millennia ago, water. The vines actually are growing up out of fossils of seashells. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking about white wine from Italy and some of the great varieties that are famous, especially in northern Italy, Arnaise definitely is one of them. But I think in the grander scheme of the wine world, a lot of people have never even heard of Arnaise. You've heard of Desi Arnaise. Lucy, what is this? Not necessarily the grape. Well, the other fun thing about these like lesser known grapes, um, we're comparing them to these very serious grapes, very serious wine regions. Uh, But these are a fraction of the price. You know, these are sub $20 $20 where if you were getting this in Burgundy, it would be, you know, 40 plus. Right. Chablis on the cheap. Given that my oldest son is now in college, well, that's kind of the direction I need to go. <laughs> Good luck. Just wrote one of those checks myself the other day. Uh. So yeah, this one feels a little bit softer on the palate. Feels like a little bit more fleshy. 
yeah. while, while it does have some of that briny and, and mineral and acid, it feels a little bit more round and... It's fruitier. There's a more noticeable fruit profile while the other one was like, what is this, you know, sleek bit of craziness that I've never tried before, mm -hmm. which is gonna make it hard for me to vote because I love things that I've never tried before. Arnais is apparently a difficult grape to grow. It has that reputation. And Arnais apparently translates in Piedmontese literally as little rascal. Partner. I'm getting a, right. a note of buckwheat in this. That, Monty. <laughs> <laughs> Little rascal. Or just Arnais. Monty Arnais. Lucy, I'm home. One of the other re reasons we wanted to feature some of these wines is while we were there, we got to see the vineyards, and this guy lost pretty much his entire crop for 2023. Wow. due to hail, which is crazy because you you know we're seeing this sort of like global warming really affecting you know this is a region that doesn't see this kind of weather ever. It's um, not so just it's, our farmers in Western Mass. No, yeah. farmers all over the globe. They literally had to add extra grapes to Bordeaux because they can't keep up with the way the climate's moving to make sure they get enough of the grapes that have traditionally been part of that region. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's huge not just for our farmers here. If you love wine, it's huge all over the place. Yeah, and this is one of those, if you, if you like this, you got to drink it now because in a couple of years, the, we're not going to be getting nearly as much wine, and, and in some cases, no wine. Unfortunately, too, with hail, um, the impact isn't just in a solid year. The vines are damaged so much by the golf size balls of ice shooting down at them at a rapid force from the sky Crazy. that the vines can get damaged for multiple years after the fact. So while 2023 is 100% loss, probably 2024 will be like a 50% loss just because the vines need a couple years to bounce back and heal. Uh, Lorenzo Negro, who makes this wine and whose name is on the bottle, his 93-year-old mother was out in the vineyard with us, which was kind of amazing. She's still got it. <laughs> and she was saying that the storm that hit them this year was the worst she had ever seen. She's lived on this property for 93 years, so she's seen 93 years worth of storms. Ay, ay, ay. That's chilling. That's why we drink. That's why yeah. we drink. You need a, a strong glass of our nice after. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. After that. Okay. So what do you guys think? Are we ready to vote here? Two wines enter, one wine leaves. Two wines enter, one wine leaves! Wine Thunderdome, Provisions, Longmeadow, Benson, Tony, and Bruce. Benson and Tony mm. just came back from Northern Italy where these wines are from, the Rorero Arnis and the Urbaluce. 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 <laughs> My grandmother, Mary Nataluce, yeah. will love it. <laughs> no, she's dead, but she would have. She would have. She only drank white Zinfandel, so it really would have been an uphill yeah, battle maybe, to yeah. try to get her <laughs> to drink this one. Who wants to vote first? When I show up and crash your vacation on Plum Island, uh, yeah. uh, uh -huh. I will bring the Urbaluce because we'll be sitting on the beach, it'll be hot, I'm gonna want something like crisp, fresh, but if I crash your dinner, I'm probably gonna bring the Arnais because I think that's gonna be a little bit more food friendly. Okay, that's Benson's vote. Yeah. Bruce, what's your vote? Right. I, I think for my palate, the Herbaluche is a little too one-dimensional. The acidity sort of dominates everything else. My vote is for the Arnais, which I think is, you know, just great. Tony DeLuca, the wine and beverage buyer for Provisions All Three Stores. Um, I'm going to say I probably the Lorenzo Negro Arnis because it's just feeling a little bit riper. I think it's more of a crowd pleaser. And I can't finish a bottle on my own. I mean, I could, but nobody wants to see that. <laughs> so if I'm going to be sharing, I think it's a little bit more approachable for some of the girlfriends. Uh -huh. So I'd probably, um, probably do the Arnis. If I am on Plum Island and I'm eating oysters, mm -hmm. I want the Herbaluce. It's yeah. so steely. It wants yeah. food. It's so acidic. It makes my mouth water. A food wine for sure. Mm -hmm. And yeah. because it's a grape I've never tried, super fun, and I want to get it to experiment. And but actually, we had it with a lot of cheese while we were there. I mean, you go to Italy, you sit down anywhere with these winemakers, the cheese is the first thing to hit the table. Mm. And it is shocking how well it goes with cheese. But I think the vote is unanimous. It's the Lorenzo Negro, Rorero. Arnais. It's just a little bit more going on for a wine to just sit around and drink. Mm -hmm. yeah. Unanimity. Unanimity. Wow. Yeah. We well, have consensus. The, the little rascal wins again. <laughs> the Fabulous 413 is funded by Real Pickles, a worker cooperative in Greenfield producing organic, raw, fermented vegetables sourced from Northeast Family Farms, realpickles.com. And it is Live Music Friday here in the fabulous 413. And joining me in the studio are members of the Northampton-based band King Radio. Frank Padalero, or Padalaro, depending on who you ask, 
Brandy Edis rhymes with lettuce, and Ken Murray rhymes with fury for his third appearance with three different <laughs> acts in Live Music Friday. And King Radio is reforming to be part of performance this Tuesday, Pines Theater Look Park, a benefit for arts enrichment in the Northampton schools. We may get into who you will be performing as, but that has historically been a gauche way to deal with uh, the performance performance. Well, you can say who you're performing as because it's on the poster, but okay. you shouldn't say the song. Okay, Neil Diamond. Uh, but for, for, first, King Radio is going to pay tribute to another local hero who's been here for Live Music Friday, the great Ray Mason. When I lay down my head I pray the stars will shine bright But my prayers lie in vain For you're not with me tonight I cry and I cry But it just don't make right When you're lost and alone Shadows are calling my name. Blue shadows again and again. The other side of the pillow. I need to catch the added tears. Blue shadows are calling. King Radio here in Live Music Friday and the fabulous 413, Frank Pavillaro, Brandy Edis, and Ken Murray, who will be performing at Performance on Tuesday, <laughs> Pines Theater, Look Park. It's a tribute that's been going on for 33 years where the musical family, really, of the Valley come together and donate their time to raise money for arts enrichment in the Northampton schools. 
Ken's been there a bazillion times. King Radio has been there a million times. Some of your favorite King Radio uh, portrayals over the years? Oh, by by far my favorite performance is when we did the Flaming Lips. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was nearly 100 degrees. We were dressed <laughs> up in furry animal costumes. <laughs> and uh, as Bill um, described it, it was... Uh, you're witnessing human sacrifice here on the Pine Cedar <laughs> stage today. <laughs> it is always such a great time, and it's a great um, way to raise money, as I mentioned. And you're going to be Neil Diamond this Tuesday. I had originally, immediately, when the uh, the announcement that the theme was going to be the elements claimed Neil Diamond. But when I heard that King Radio wanted to do Neil <laughs> Diamond, I knew there'd be no way I could compete. So I totally and fully, wholeheartedly relinquished Neil Diamond to you. <laughs> but I will be there as an MC in between. So if you need me to, Please like, come and shout today, today, I'll, I'm <laughs> there. For you, that. You've tipped a song. Oh, <laughs> you've done it. Oh no! Oh, we've tipped the bell. Well, we're gonna do a little Neil Diamond on the way out. But before we go, I want to say that next week we'll be celebrating Beach Week. We'll be revisiting some of our favorite conversations, like with Oscar winner Ruth E. Carter and blues legend Robert Johnson's stepsister Annie Johnson, who lives in Amherst. A huge thank you to our director, Tony. Happy birthday, Ryan Dunn. Our engineer, Betsy, what are you going to do without us? Langto, who bought us more time at the end of this show. (laughs) And a big thanks as well to Chris, Chuck, and Kara, who worked through the night to get our electrical system back up and running in this building. Without further ado, performing at Performance on Tuesday, King Radio as Neil Diamond. was mine until the time that I found her Holding Jim, loving him And Sue came along, loved me strong Or so I thought Me and Sue, that tattoo Don't know that I will, but until I can find me Girl who stay and won't play games behind me. I'll be what I am. A solitary man. Solitary man. Had it to hear being well loves a small word. Part time things. A paper ring. Oh, it's been done having one girl who loves you Right or wrong, weak or strong Don't know that I will, but until I can find me A girl who stay and won't play games behind me I'll be what I am, a solitary man Solitary man